Have you broken your New Year's resolutions yet? Pastor, it's only been the first day, the morning of the first day. I know it's only the first day, but I know how it goes. And I do hope all your troubles last as long as your New Year's resolutions this year. And I hope and I pray for the reformation of the church. The reformation means the church is biblical. The reformation means the church being biblical is biblical means the reformation therefore means that your home will be secure in the word. And the church without reformation is the church babble, perfectly undefined and exposed to discord, division, and heresy. And the home without reformation is tossed to and fro by the winds and cunning of crafty men and their opinions and commandments. The church must live biblically so that you, Christian, live securely in Christ. And that is a good start to the new year. The church must live biblically so that you, Christian, live securely. That is a perfect first Lord's Day thesis, and it is my thesis this morning. A good place to start. Here is the main idea of the sermon this morning. We live biblically. We live biblically to live safely in Christ. Two points. We live biblically. We live safely in Christ. We live biblically to live safely in Christ. May the Holy Spirit seal that truth to our hearts from his word this morning. 1 Kings 8 marks a new era in Israel's history. From this point on, Israel will no longer worship at the tent of meeting. They will worship in permanence at the temple before the Lord. Now, of course, it's all performative. Failure to obey God's word would lead to exile. Failure to obey God's word left them unprotected from God's word, exposed to their own sin, which would lead to exile. And this is true of all God's people. Christ has earned our permanence. We don't have to fear exile, for Christ is our exodus. He has delivered us from sin and death. Nevertheless, we must serve the Lord biblically. We must live biblically in 2023. That is not a New Year's resolution. That is just Christianity. We must live biblically in 2023. We read in verse 1 of chapter 8 of 1 Kings, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers, houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem. Solomon has assembled an inclusive group. The elders were Israel's respected older, mind you, not 16-year-olds knocking on your door, but older respected leaders. And as you read the Old Testament, you realize the office of elder has been around before the New Covenant. The office of elder is an Old Covenant office that's also now a New Covenant office. The heads of the tribes were the chiefs of the tribal families. 
And all of the fathers here assembled are the men, the fathers of the household of Israel. The leadership in Israel was inclusive. Men. Why men only? That's an interesting question. Why men only? The question was never asked until modernity. It is an enlightenment question. Why men only? Now, modernity, if you're aware, has separated society, a line, a division between the left and the right. The left and the right. And unfortunately, the church has assumed culture and separated accordingly. So you have the Christian right. And the Christian right answers the question, why men only? And the Christian right's answer is, because men are better. Men are superior. A horrible answer. Unbiblical to the core. The Imago Dei, I love seeing all the women's heads nods. I saw a couple of you punching your husbands like this. No. Nobody was doing that here. The Imago Dei is both man and woman. The image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. In the New Covenant, male and female are one in Christ. Together we are the priesthood of believers, and so we are commanded to submit to one another. Did you know before the Bible calls wives to submit to their husbands, before Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands, you know what it says before that? Husbands and wives submit to one another. That's the order, Christian. The proper biblical order is submit to one another. Honor one another. Honor one another above yourself is Bible living. So the Christian right says, well, men are better. The Christian life says, because we know better. We know better now. The ancients were horrible people, excluding women the way they did. We are enlightened. We know better than God's word. When God's word doesn't obey the opinions and commandments of our time, the left forsakes it for the values of modernity instead. So what's the solution? It's easy. Don't be cultural in your church. Be biblical. The Bible is very clear. Men only are ordained, are ordained to the ministry. And men were only ordained in the ministry until the Enlightenment. And the reason why was never asked. Before modernity, the church never asked why men. And the church never asked why men because the Bible never answers. The Bible never questions it. The Bible never answers. We know God made his covenant with Adam, which is why he was formed first. We know God only calls men as ministers. And why is not ontological. It has nothing to do with gender or masculinity. It's covenantal. It's covenantal. 
You see, Satan tempted Eve first because Satan doesn't create. Satan distorts, and Satan twists God's word. That's why he spoke to Eve first. He wanted to upset the order of creation, of the covenant, because that's what he does. He twists, he distorts, he can't create. He just takes what's already there and turns it upside down. When women are ordained, it's modernity speaking, not the Bible. But women are invaluable. Women are invaluable in the church. Women are invaluable in the ministry. And women can do anything in the church that an unordained man can do, just as good, perhaps better. And I do mean that perhaps better. Women have more of a pastoral heart, do they not, men? They're kind of shepherds that, they're kind of shepherds in who they are. And the unfairness and gender equality of it all is the complaint of cultural Marxism. Be biblical instead. Now the left and the right both assume their answers a priori. Thanks to the Enlightenment, they don't need induction. What has God said, they begin deductively. Has God said? Rather than letting God's word speak inductively, They know the answers beforehand. I think, therefore, I am. And they dig for proof texts to support their commandments. And they pull them out of context to support their opinions. But we do the Bible inductively. We forsake this world to experience the truth of God's word. And there's nothing more countercultural. Listen, young people, there's nothing more countercultural than following the Bible. This makes the Reformed the original punk. We are the original punk. And the Psalms are the original blues. Turns out you don't need to tie dye your hair and tie dye or dye your hair and do all these things to be countercultural. You don't need to fight the man with the way you look, just be biblical. You're fighting the man. <laughs> Verse 1. So he brought these men, he says, King Solomon, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is in Zion. What covenant is the ark of the covenant? It's the Mosaic covenant. It's the Mosaic covenant. We read that already in verse 9. There is nothing in the ark, he says, verse 9, except the two tablets of the stone that Moses put there at Horeb. When the Lord, where the Lord made a covenant with his people, Egypt, after he brought them out of the land of Egypt, the exile, or excuse me, the exodus. So the covenant with the law is the covenant of works. It's the do this and live. Failure meant exile, and just like Adam and Eve were exiled from paradise, so Israel faced exile from the promised land for disobedience. And at the inauguration of the Mosaic covenant, Moses declared that Israel would fail. When they inaugurated the covenant, and, God, and Moses said, you must do this or, be exi- or you will be exiled. And the people said, this we will do. Moses said, no, you won't. You're going to fail. You're going to be exiled. But then Moses promised a greater, a greater son to come, a greater, one greater than Moses would lead them in another exodus. There would be another exodus, another deliverance from sin and bondage and misery. 
in biblical fidelity, searches the Scripture to believe in Christ. Because the gospel is our obedience before a holy God. We read here that he assembled these men in the feast, verse 2, in the feast, uh, at the feast, at the feast in the month of Ithium, which is the seventh month. What is the feast of Ithium? It's that Mosaic covenant feast. It's the feast that Torah said, do this. You will live in tents and booths, make a little shelter. So it's the feast of booths. The feast of booths when Israel would shelter in remembrance of the exodus. They would live in a little temporary house outside their house as a reminder of Exodus. And Exodus is Yahweh's salvation of his people. That's when God delivered his people. Exodus is reverse exile. Exodus is the opposite of exile. It's bringing the back. It's Exodus is, is God bringing his people back from their sins and misery. Exodus is God leading the people back to paradise, back in the land where, like in paradise, they would have to earn the land flowing with milk and honey. But that ultimate obedience is found in Israel's greatest son. Christ is our exodus. And so in worship, as the people are living in these temporary shelters, God is finding his permanent home in Israel. And in that permanent home where Israel would worship, they would find their Savior. They would find their God who would deliver them. In the inauguration of the temple, as we read this text, you see that the inauguration of the temple is surrounded by Israel's tradition. It's surrounded by Israel's past. It's surrounded by her history with Moses and the covenants and Exodus and the, and the uh, appeals to exile and Exodus and so forth. And that's because it's not necessarily a new day in Israel or even a new era. It is a new day, but it's not a new era. It is a new day where they would no longer worship at the tent of meeting. They would worship at the temple, but it's not a new era. It's redemptive history. It's their same history, the same covenants that the people would live under. Verse 3, and the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. We remember Yahweh commanded the priests to carry the ark. David failed to be biblical, and that cost, that cost him some life, the life of one of his peoples. But now they are being biblically faithful, which is what we want. Verse 4, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent, the meeting, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. These holy vessels that they brought up, they were once ordinary vessels. And secular, they became sacred. And they became sacred by God's word. God commanded them, and the priests consecrated them. And, and that's the order of the sacraments. That's the proper order of religion. God commands, God instructs. And then his ministers consecrate and follow. This means biblically, if we want to be biblical Christians, we need the church. Biblically, we need the church. Now, modernity also questions this idea. When you say biblically, we need the church, modernity says, well, no, I think, therefore, I am. And in the digital age, especially during COVID in the digital age, a new question has emerged from modernity. And that question is this, can Christians, can I take the sacraments at home? Because that's where I am. Can lay people self-administer the sacraments? 
Now, if you follow the Enlightenment, if that's kind of your thinking process, then you don't believe the church is institutional. You believe religion is a matter of opinion, sentimentalism, and expressive individualism. And so the answer for you as an enlightened person is, you do you, buddy. You just go do you. But if religion is sola scriptura, then it is institutional by necessity because the truth is absolute. And the Bible must be handled rightly. You know, when Paul says, handle the Bible rightly, who's he speaking to? He wrote that letter to a minister. And he calls the church in that same letter the pillar and buttress of the truth. And then in the book of Acts, God's word calls the church to gather in courts. And there in her courts, to protect the truth with creeds and confessions. If religion is not institutional, then it's all relative and the enlightenment wins and we might as well go cringe. Might as well go cringe with praise bands and smoke machines. Ugh, it's cringy. Makes me shiver when I see it. Like, ugh. Told you we're the, we're the original punk. Anyway, the sacraments in Scripture are always public. They're always ecclesiastical. Jesus established the visible church in Matthew 16, Matthew 18, and Matthew 28. And as one of our own ministers has said, he said it best, I quote, throughout all their epistles, the apostles assumed the righteousness of the visible institutional church. They did not defend their existence any more than they defend the existence of air or water. They take it as a given. They take it as a given, a divine institution. And so they write, the apostles and disciples, they write to visible congregations. They don't write to small group Bible studies or discipleship groups. They wrote their epistles to congregations with pastors, elders, and deacons. And when Jesus declared all authority had been given to him, he commanded the apostles, the ministers of the visible church at that time, to use the sacraments. When Paul corrected the Corinthians' use of the Holy Communion, they were abusing it. He did so by writing to a visible institutional congregation with officers and members. Biblical fidelity begins and ends with the visible church. If the church is sola scriptura, it is institutional by necessity. Verse 5. We must follow suit. Verse 5, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they couldn't be counted or numbered. That's a lot of blood. So much blood and death, more that can be counted or numbered. Why? Why is another modern question. Why so much sacrifice? Why does God want to kill so many things in the Old Testament? Why is God so violent? You see, according to modern standards, God is, God is a moral monster. That's actually a quote from a modern thinker. 
According to modern standards, God is a moral monster. Moral monster for all his ethnic cleansing. And he's immoral, patriarchal, and racist. That all assumes cultural Marxism. It's actually read into the text. You see, there's a lot of blood in the Bible. There's a lot of blood in the Bible, and the Bible gives the answer. There's a lot of death because God is holy, holy, holy. This isn't ethnic cleansing. It's always sin cleansing. Sin committed against the supreme majesty of God must be punished with a supreme penalty. God requires that his justice be satisfied, and therefore the claims of this justice must be fully paid for, fully satisfied, either by ourselves or, thankfully, by another. The other, the another, is the mercy of God. You see, sin cleansing in the Bible leads us to Christ. Always our sacrifice for sins. And by the blood of the spotless lamb, our sins have been wiped clean. You see, Christ is our safety. That's our second point this morning. We live biblically, following God's word alone, to live safely in Christ alone. We read verse 6, And the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to the place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. They brought it to the most holy place because God's, that's God's place. God is the most holy, verse 7. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The cherubim symbolized sheltering God's holiness. They were wings sheltering the holiness of God. And it wasn't for God's protection. You see, the holiest is a consuming fire of justice. A great brilliance of purity that destroys everything impure. The cherubim symbolized Israel's protection. They were sheltering the holiness of God from Israel. Verse 8, the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they're there to this day. Now, we don't see these poles this day. (laughs) The, 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 The hearers of this at one point saw those poles, but we don't see the poles. Why don't we see the poles today? Because Christ destroyed the temple. Christ destroyed the temple. Verse 9, there was nothing in the ark except the tablets, the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. The ark we see here symbolized God's real presence. God is with his people in the ark. With the law, symbolizing God's care of the law. God's real presence with the law, God's real presence with his people through covenant. 
The ark symbolized God's real presence. Do holy relics contain God? That's another question. That's an old question, though. We've had all these modern questions, but here's an old question for you. Do holy relics contain God? Asked all throughout the Middle Ages. And contrary to Rome, we say no. Contrary to Rome, we say no. We don't capture God with our relics, with the things that we build and the things that we create. We don't capture God with our making. No, God captures us. God captures his people. God does all the capturing. That's what we see here in verse 10. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. This is the radiance of God's glory, the train of the brilliant majesty of the king of kings, whose glory is so great no man can stand before it and live. The same glory that descended upon the tent of meeting at its completion in Exodus, or after the Exodus. And like with Moses, the priests could not perform their servants' service when the Lord descended on the temple. When he descended on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, he could not descend, they could not come before the Lord now that he descends in the temple because of the glory of the Lord. Verse 7, verse 11 says, So the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory of Yahweh chased the priests out of the temple. Because the God of Exodus, the God of Sinai, had come to dwell in his temple. The God of creation who hovered over the darkness of chaos and separated the darkness with light is the same God of salvation who delivered Israel from bondage and led them by the pillar of light. The same light that terrorized them on the Mount of Sinai. That same great brilliance. It's the same glory that led the Magi and the shepherds to their Savior. It is the epiphany of the Lord. The epiphany of the Lord that now dwells in God's last temple, the church of the living God. We fear no longer the glory of God, for Christ is our shelter. His death, when Christ died, the earth shook. The veil of the temple was torn in two. When Christ completed the Mosaic Covenant, that law there in that covenant, God with us, he fulfilled it, born of the woman, born under the law. He completed the Mosaic Covenant. And so we come before the Lord dressed in the vestments of Christ's righteousness. And we are now the holiness of God, not in our biblical fidelity, but in Christ. Christ is our paradise. Christ is our paradise. He is our only comfort, body and soul. Christ is our exodus, who has delivered us from the tyranny of the devil. And this doesn't mean we can now do whatever we want. Because we are not our own, but belong body and soul to our faithful Savior. And so we are now wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So we are going to live biblically in 2023. This church is going to be reformed. That is, we are going to operate according to the word of the Lord alone. 
which means we're not going to look like others, which means we're going to be secure in Christ. Happy New Year. Amen. At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.